Namaste and in La Ketch, and welcome to this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefiel, and this week's guest is Phil Johnson. He is an amazing man. He's a principal and founder of the Master of Business Leadership Incorporated. He has been a an individual corporate and organizational leadership trainer for decades around the world and worked with some of the largest companies in the world in doing so. He's also got a podcast called Emotional Intelligence, and he has a uh, degree from McMaster University and the DeGroote School of Business. Phil, I, I know that you've got a... <laughs> <laughs> resume and arm length. So I hope I did it justice. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dan. It's uh, it's great to be here with you. Well, thank you for sharing your time and, and insight as we shall see. Um, so, you know, initially you've, you've done some really great things in the business world, the outer world and training others and getting them to perform better, do more and, and perhaps even be more than they thought they could. And yet there's another side of this. We see the, the evidence in the outer world and, and the results and, and the driving of the business and uh, stakeholder dividends and things of that nature. However, there's another side of that, the inner side that most of us don't really talk about a whole lot. And yet, you know, I'm kind of reminded of um, a gentleman, 92 years old when I met him, he was uh past president of the Valley National Bank here in the Phoenix area. And he and his brother were responsible for bringing over 70% of the business into the Valley in the thirties and forties. <laughs> so he, there was an interview with him <clears throat> in a lo local newspaper. And he'd said, Hey, I'm just here to talk to people. And I thought, well, here's a 92 year old. What kind of wisdom could he share? And by gosh, I want to go talk to him. And I had a uh, business plan that I had just, well, a project plan that I'd written for an international cultural center that I wanted to run by him to see what he thought of it. And uh, it was for my degree program at the time. Getting to speak with him, we had a wonderful half hour chat. And then all of a sudden he starts talking to me about how his wife's psychic gifts had helped him through the entire process, the astrology, Tarot, and her sensitivity. And just, it was amazing that he would open up and share those kinds of things, which are kind of uncommon, or maybe they are more common and then just not accepted in the general discussion of things. Have you had things like that happen in, in, in your lifetime and that added to your ability to serve others and, and yourself? Oh, yeah. Um, there have been uh, probably, there have definitely been uh, coincidences in my life that uh, I think uh, were divine in nature. Um, my being born with dyslexia was one of them. I, um, back in, I'm 69 and back when I was born in 1953, uh, and for some time afterwards, there's no such thing as dyslexia or ADD or ADHD. Right. Um, but I, um, it forced me to do a lot of what I now refer to as a, as emotional labor 
and that helped prepare me for the work I've been doing as an executive coach for the last 22 years. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of things that go on that we're unconscious of. We're only actually conscious about three to 5%, sorry, yeah, three to 5% of the time. So there's, um, there's a lot of things that are going on in us and around us that we're totally unaware of or marginally aware of. Until we start exploring and asking questions about them, right? The curiosity. Now, as a dyslexic um, and as a child, I'm sure that the curiosity was there. As you grew older and developed this emotional stamina, if you will, how, what were the kind of things that you discovered about yourself and others, not in, in a um, compare and contrast kind of way, just that things that were different for you that gave you additional insight that others might not have had because of the awareness you had from the dyslexia? Yeah, I think one of the, um, one of the advantages uh, is uh, the ability to recognize patterns um, that other people might not necessarily see, at least initially. Mm -hmm. um, and being a visual thinker, um, it kind of helps to, uh, to make, create, make, simplify complex ideas. Mm -hmm. so now, as a visual um, thinker, what, what's that like? You know, as we're, exploring the nature of how we cognate what's a what's the key points of being a visual thinker and, and i guess being a visual thinker what do you see on the inside well i'll tell you what you don't see <laughs> um <laughs> let's start there all right visual thinkers are typically uh have difficulty spelling or reading uh, and occasionally hearing. Um, they, they actually can hear, but it, it takes them a, a, a beat or two to uh, understand, the, understand the words they're hearing or the sounds they're hearing. Mm -hmm. um, so for instance, uh, when somebody tells me their name, it's hard for me to visualize uh, what they're saying. Um, I need to see it on a on a whiteboard or a piece of paper to be able to to remember it. Um, it takes me probably ten times as long to read a book as it might take a, an average person, um, and I tend to uh, invert um, numbers and words in my mind. Mm -hmm. So well, if you uh, invert and multiply, then you'd be a fractional person, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that it works that way, but um, <laughs> I, certainly I there are there are challenges um, growing up in a world that focuses on the ability to do intellectual labor. Um, mm. so. And to the extreme because of, of the things that the challenges that were faced and, and the decision-making process that we have to go through in order to be present 
accountable, responsible, and productive, uh, especially when we're challenged with other um, sensory capacities. Well, I don't think it interferes with being present. Um, but yeah, there there are definite uh, challenges living in a world that has up until this point um, valued primarily a person's ability to do intellectual labor. I actually just wrote a a piece on this this morning, Ken, if I could just take Interesting six seconds. coincidence. If I could just take six seconds and read it. Sure. Yeah, coincidence. Um, I, I've come to the understanding in my life that there really are no coincidences. We just don't see them clearly enough. Well, here goes. Uh, in the world of today, where technology is rapidly advancing and traditional academic skills are becoming less and less important, Visual thinking is quickly becoming a valuable asset. Visual thinkers are able to see patterns and connections that other types of thinkers may not be able to perceive. This allows them to solve complex problems in ways that others may, may not have thought of. Visual thinkers can also be used, visual thinking can also be used to improve communication skills. It can be help, it can be helpful to move, move us out of our comfort zones so that we can see the bigger picture. Uh, despite the advantages that visual thinkers have over other types of thinkers, they do face some challenges. Visual thinkers may have difficulty spelling and reading. Visual thinking is, is an invaluable skill in the digital age. It can be used to solve complex problems, improve communication skills, and gain a better understanding of the world around us. So, um, in my practice, in my coaching practice, uh, it often enables me to see and help others to see um, what they haven't been able to see initially. Mm -hmm. Opening those doors can be phenomenal in, in, uh, in the insights, the lights going on, and, and the changes in behavior almost immediately as a result. It's phenomenal as to what can happen. Now, one of the, the words you're speaking of, of, you know, the visual thinkers and the different way, it, it's kind of nonlinear, right? Because we both have, or not both, we often experience the world in a linear way and don't realize there's a lot of nonlinear activity that's taking place in it. And so, and there's a new word that I heard the other day, it was called multi-potentialite. And it was referring to the divergent uh, thinking that visual thinkers, nonlinear thinkers, and, and the like are able to have. And they've been largely ignored up until recently in industry because of that. Now, as you say, they're extremely valuable because of the way they process and can see the things that others can't see. Now, how do you see that connecting this uh, overall sense of continuity between the inner and outer perspectives in life? Um, what do you mean by inner and outer? Great Maybe. question, and thank you for asking that. So 
it's been said that we live half inside and half outside. That outer life is what we experience in the world, outside oh. of the physical body. The inner life is what goes on inside that's still also in relationship with the outer world. We're just not aware of it. Most of us are bereft of what's going on inside of us. We're too caught up in the outer world. Yep. So one of the things I've been able to prove are the central thesis of the work I do involves energy physics. Oh, perfect. Um, I love it. And uh, let, me, let me roll back just a little bit here. Uh, when we're born, we're not born with a conscious mind. We don't start to become conscious until we're about a year or so old. But we are born with an unconscious mind. And we immediately start wiring up our brain, creating the neural network pathways that become our habits in order to survive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those habits unconsciously cause us to give away our energy. And we do it in lots of different ways, and how we communicate, listen, take responsibility, make decisions, all sorts of ways. But when we give away our energy, it creates an energy deficit in us. So at the same time we're unconsciously giving away our energy, we have to be replacing the energy by trying to steal it from other people. And that dynamic is going on inside of everybody, everywhere, all over the world, kind of a push all the time. And pull of energy, if you will. Well, not so much. You get what you want and affect others. So there's this... Um, just think of it not in terms of an adversarial relationship, but definitely a contentious one in the competition. Well, okay. Um, when we give away our energy, it causes us to raise our walls and mm. become, we become more resistive, more judgmental, and more attached to outcome. And that is the root cause of all drama, chaos, and conflict we see everywhere. Um, that's why the current level of employee engagement worldwide, according to Gallup, is around 13%. And it's costing the U.S. Low levels of employee engagement or toxicity is costing the U.S. economy over a trillion dollars a year. And it's also why over 80% of all M&A and organizational development initiatives fail. So what I do in the MBL program is I show people how they're unconsciously giving away their energy and I give them better habits to practice to stop doing that. And when they stop giving away their energy, their need to steal the energy of other people goes away because they don't need it. And it's in that process, the outcomes um, of going through that process are you become a more inspirational leader. Um, uh, you develop your emotional intelligence you become more conscious of what's going on in you and around you. And that helps to free you from your ego-based fear. Mm. Um, leads to higher levels of engagement, uh, career, corporate, and personal success. But getting back to your question, learning and practicing the habits to lower our walls reconnects us with who we really are. Really, It reconnects us with our creativity, our genius, our divinity, um, so that we're actually able to distance ourselves from our ego-based fear. We become the, the observer of our egos. Right. And our reality and the reality become the same thing. So we're aligning our inner world with the outer world. So what we see inside and what we see outside are the same thing.
that's why I was hoping you would go with that because it is that's our ultimate goal. And but and let me ask you, you know, you mentioned divine being, and, and I agree. However, do we agree on what that divinity really means? I mean, we tend to anthropomorphize anthropomorphize God and yet limit ourselves in the understanding of such as with the quantum energy physics and, and you know i was talking with dr laszlo uh, recently about it and i, I mentioned that well you know I, there were one percent matter and 99 percent space and, and he said i would say we are 100 percent energy and from that perspective in agreement with what you're saying in that divine flow there seems to be a uh, almost a curation if you will of multiple aspects of ourself being in a particular uh, i've i've heard it referred to as a perfected form fit and function in the world when you align the inner and outer perspectives would you agree with that does it seem that that's what taking place. I'm not quite sure what you're saying, but I would like to respond. Sure. Um, we're not living life. We are life. Uh, living for a brief moment in time in a physical form. Every single cell in our body is, every single cell in your body is vibrating exactly the same frequency. That, that's the energy that's unique to you that's giving your body life. Um, and eventually, your body will wear out and die. Matter of fact, it, it dies, every cell in your body dies and replaces itself at least once in every seven-year period. Mm -hmm. If you think about that, how can that be? I mean, if there isn't a single cell in your body that was there seven years ago, how can you exist? And the reason you exist is because you are not those cells. You are the energy giving those cells life. And when those cells wear out, when those cells die, that energy simply leaves those cells. But you cannot destroy energy. So as you, the whole purpose of our existence in this physical form is to take the challenges we face and how we face them as the opportunities to raise our level of consciousness about what's going on in us and around us. And in the process of doing that, we're reconnecting with the divinity that is inside every one of us. And the only thing that's separating us from that divinity is our ego-based fears, mm -hmm. the walls they create within us. The thoughts that we have that are that distract us from that now you mentioned earlier the three to four maybe five percent of mm -hmm. conscious brain use right well no it, it's uh consciousness it's not it's not three to four three to five percent of brain use it's we're only conscious. We're conscious of a brain is an organ uh consciousness is not an organ agreed 100 percent um there, there's a non-local mind, if you will, that feeds the brain from in various ways. And, and that's just one way to put it. But I think you understand where I'm coming from with that. My question is, though, is it possible that as we 
learn more, ask the questions to learn more about ourselves that end with that perspective of renewal of ourselves every seven years, is it possible that as we grow in awareness and consciousness that our lives would also be extended as a result? Marginally, but our, our, our biology isn't meant for long-term existence. See, but we're not our biology. Um, we're the, we're, our biology is simply the vehicle that our energy inhabits in order for us to face the challenges we, we deal with in the attempt to raise our level of individual and mm -hmm. collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that's really the objective. And the, our biology isn't really that important. If it wasn't, we wouldn't have it, I suppose, in looking at it from that larger perspective. And that, you know, it just seems to me that the logic behind looking at, you know, how we've developed long term that, you know, we're kind of a blink in the eye. We only see less than 1% of the visual spectrum of the electromagnetic spectrum. There, there are so many things that we are so small in that we've just begun to be to understand a larger aspect. It just seems, given what we know and the progression of that, um, any there's a Russian academia, Marina or um, Valentina Morovina, that uh, she's got a degree in astrophysics and, and uh, biochemistry, I believe, and she's discovering over the last decade. Um, there have been discoveries from multiple scientists that there is an evolutionary, uh, what she's calling it, um, a global mutation in humanity that's happening on a bio-spiritual level. Excuse me. Uh, um, so in, in that perspective, it's, you know, we're looking at the horizon and not necessarily what's in front of us because we aren't there yet. However, it seems that in this natural evolutionary product process of learning the natural order of creation which includes the natural order of ourselves that we could somehow find that you know return trip uh, or at least the connection to our origins and actually more fully embody them as um, conscious beings that are able to have a greater experience of life across those uh, dimensions that are uh, set forth in the uh, particle physics and multidimensional theories and M-theory and, and even the... I think it's actually very simplistic. I think it, it doesn't need to be complicated. Well, I the, agree. The point is that as we, as we learn to stop giving away our energy, uh, we become less resistive, less judgmental, less attached to outcome, and that enables us to reconnect with who we truly are and to connect with each other. So as we learn to lower our walls, as we learn to stop giving away our energy, um, we increase our connection with ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. And it's qu quite 
it's it's very easy to explain. It's very difficult to do because we have significant both biological and sociological resistance to change. Mm. And the real challenge we have in this century is that we're facing a tsunami of accelerating change with a 500 billion, sorry, 500 million year old brain that doesn't like change. Some scientists estimate in this century, we could experience the equivalent of 20,000 years worth of change. So change is increasing at an exponential rate and we don't like change. Um, doesn't matter whether the change is a good change or bad change, we don't like change. And so that's going to create increasing levels. What psychologists refer to as an amygdala hijack, whenever we take an action that moves us outside of our comfort zone, there's a part of our old lizard brain called the amygdala that automatically triggers a release of a hormone called cortisol into our bloodstream. And that causes the executive center of our brain, our prefrontal cortex to shut off. And we go into what's referred to as an amygdala hijack. When that happens in conflict situations, people die. When it happens in business or personal situations, relationships die, we burn trust. So as an analogy, if you think of your amygdala as a very frightened four-year-old child, the development of our emotional intelligence acts like a big brother or a big sister to quiet the amygdala response down and better enable us to feel the fear and anxiety that change and innovation triggers in us and move through it towards what it is we're trying to achieve as opposed to allowing that fear and anxiety to keep us trapped in our comfort zones. So would you say then as we move through that and, and being able to do, recognize and, and able to do so in our growing awareness, we have less and less things to be afraid of now. Um, at some levels and others, there's still the, you know. Well, that's, a, that's a good question, but I would say, uh, it's not that we have less things to be afraid of. What actually happens is we learn to coexist with our fear. We but, learn to be, we learn to separate ourselves from our ego-based fear so that we become um, an observer of our, of our fear. So we're able to coexist with it, acknowledge it, feel it, and move through it towards what it is we're trying five. to achieve as opposed to allowing that fear and anxiety to keep us trapped in our comfort zones. Right. I, I totally agree. Have had that as both of us. I'm, I'm sure we've gone through that on numerous occasions in various ways. In those numerous occasions in various ways, what we, what I think we seek is, is you know, very simple as well, to love and be loved, first of all. And that manifests as being able to be the observer, stay out of the fear-based stuff, begin to look at what seemed to be chaos with a different view and acknowledge that, oh, there's patterns in there that I'm unfamiliar, don't know, don't understand. And so it creates that cortisol release as a result. And yet when it, it seems anyway, when we step back from that, there's less cortisol, there's, the mind opens up a bit more as well as the body, and the body's just an instrument we haven't learned how to tune yet, let alone use because or play in concert, because it's full of senses. Um, and that's you know thousands of years old as far as the understanding of that, yet we haven't been able to apply that. Do you think that 
this process that that we are talking about of this um, evolutionary leap, if you will, a kind of an evil leap of of consciousness and and the capacity based on this escalation of information activity and and knowledge that's being poured into us now. Do you think that that will naturally move us toward a more cohesive civilization over time? That's the million dollar question. Uh, I think that the accelerating rate of global change is going to drive some people deeper into their comfort zones and they're gonna become more resistive, more judgmental, more attached outcome. But for others, it will be the catalyst to move them outside of their comfort zones and they'll become less resistive, less judgmental and less attached outcome. And I can tell you that the rewards of doing this kind of work are remarkable, but there's in reality, there's actually very few people that are willing to do the emotional labor this requires. Um, so, could you describe what that's like? That what's in peel back the layers a little bit. What's this emotional work contingent upon, or how is it done? Give you an example. Uh, well, the whole point is to become more conscious of how we're giving away our energy and developing the habits to stop doing that. And I'll give you an example of how we're unconsciously giving away our energy. Um, so let me just talk for a couple of minutes. Perfect. Um, yeah. Wind up. This is actually the, uh, the second MBL habit called uh, authentic listening. And the key to authentic listening is not to take anything personally. Hmm. How somebody feels about you, whether they like you or whether they hate you, has nothing to do with you. It has to do with what's going on inside of them. But if how you feel about yourself is based on how somebody else feels about you, who's running your life, you or them? Well, obviously it's them. You're unconsciously giving away your energy to other people to determine how you feel about yourself. If you like me, I like me. If you don't like me, I don't like me. And as strange as that might sound, what I've described is all of social media. We bend over backwards to get people to like us so that we can feel better about ourselves. And so we're, we're giving away our energy and how we, how we listen in that way. And that's not where it ends because when we're giving away our energy, we're simultaneously needing to replace that energy by trying to steal it from other people. And that's just one example so we look of, the, of the dynamics that are going on in us and around us everywhere. And that is the root cause of all drama, chaos, and conflict. And when we stop doing that, when we stop giving away our energy, um, the need for drama, chaos, and conflict goes away. I am a witness to that. And the process can be, you know, it, it's different for everyone, right? And, and most often, do you find that it's, um, that there's some type of almost um, unbearable trauma that a person is caught in 
that yeah. they're looking for a way out that finally gets them to ask. yeah there's only two sources of motivation that will cause us to leave our comfort zone and go through the um the anxiety that triggers in us hmm. uh those those two sources of motivation are pain and passion and hardly anybody's connected with their passion so for the most part the people that are motivated to do the the emotional labor this process requires um, are usually motivated by pain and urgent desire for better results than they're currently getting. Um, well, let's look and, at the patient side. I, I understand in the world. I mean, there's all kinds of, of trauma release scenarios, right? Let's look at the patient side and focus on it for a minute. And by your admission, and, and I feel the same way too, passion has driven my life. I've done some really bizarre things that people would like to, you know, be scared uh, completely of. And yet it, it's that passion, it's that curiosity, it, it's the fearlessness that develops after a time. How do we develop that kind of passion and, and willingness to explore individual passion in life when i refer to passion what i really mean is love okay and what i when i when i refer to pain what i what i really mean is fear so there's the two as two opposite ends of the spectrum our fear our ego-based fear and and love so as you uh learn to lower your walls as you learn to stop giving away your energy you start moving in the direction of towards love and away from fear. As you lower your, sorry, as you raise your walls, uh, the opposite occurs. You're moving away from love towards fear. Mm -hmm. So passion, <laughs> when I say passion, I'm, I'm not talking about uh, a chemical release in our brain. I'm, I'm talking about love. So um, the two motivators that will cause us to leave our comfort zone are fear <clears throat> or love. And as you learn to lower your walls, <clears throat> as you learn to become less resistive, judgmental, and attached to the outcome, your motivation shifts from a motivation based on fear, trying to get away from something, to love, trying to move towards something. So that, from what I'm hearing you say, that passion then would kind of um, drive us into the unknown for experience and expansion of that love in however it shows up. Um, it raises our level of consciousness about what's going on in us and around us. So we actually become more conscious. Mm -hmm. We become more connected with ourselves and each other. Do you see an increase of activity in the outer world as a result of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that activity is going in both directions. Some people are becoming more resistive uh, and being more controlled by their fear. And other people are starting to become more passionate and more connected with their, with their divinity, their love. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the best ways to transition from fear to love? How do we support, offer, uh, lead? Sign up for the MBL program. Um, in other words, well, we're talking time and money. That's, that's, that's a paradigm that not many, you know, that has yeah. 
often so to answer your out. question um we have to learn to stop we have to learn to stop giving away our energy mm -hmm. we have to learn and that's really the solution um if you want to boil down the whole discussion into a fortune cookie um when we stop giving away our energy everything improves when we give away our energy everything gets worse so the whole solution is simply to become more conscious of how we're giving away our energy and develop better habits to stop doing that right and when we do that everything improves that's interesting that you know this kind of information has been around since the late 19th century at least oh, and, and long before thousands that, of I years mean, before that it's thousands it goes back to the vedantas uh, or the vedas and yet it seems like more and more people are talking about it from all kinds of different angles and in the 20s there was the byard spaulding and uh, and guy ballard who guy uh, byard spaulding took a group of scientists to southeast asia to find out why these guys were living so long and then Guy Ballard had an experience on the side of the mountain in Northern California with one who would, had called himself an ascended master. And their explanation of, of the energy and things like that was very congruent to exactly what you're saying. Now, with all of this information out there, why aren't we paying attention to it? Because of what I said earlier, we have a 500 million year old brain that doesn't like change. We would rather die than change. And the reason it's beginning to change now is because we're at a tipping point as a species. Because of the accelerating rate of global change, if we don't change our trajectory dramatically in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to have great difficulty surviving as a species. Mm -hmm. Now that resistance so, to change, when we look at nature, it's changing all the time. The, the constant change. Are we that hmm, unconscious of the world around us that we yes. have negated that yes. reality for so yes. long that now we're stuck? Yes. However, we can the different the reason we're on so unconscious is because we have something that they don't have. We have an ego, mm. and that ego is constantly trying to pull Free us will, out of the present. Pardon? Free will, choices. No, no. We're not driven by nature. We're driven. We're we make choices as to how we perceive things. Could be in fear. Could be in love. We're driven by fear. We get bombarded with fear messaging constantly, mm -hmm. twenty-four hours a day, everywhere. And we're much more biologically attuned to what might be trying to eat us than mm. what might be trying to help us. Fight so our ego-based fear has taken over. And that blinds us to the things that other things don't see because they don't have an ego. Do you see the recent global kerfuffle uh, as being kind of the 
apex of that fear-based mentality showing up? It's just getting started. Okay. We killed more people in the 20th century than in all of recorded human history. Yeah, and that trend is continuing in this century. Um, because of the accelerating rate of global change, we can expect to see we can expect to see increasing levels of drama, chaos, and conflict, pain, fear, and mm -hmm. the solution is the development of our emotional intelligence so that we can feel that fear that change triggers in us and be able to acknowledge it and move through it as opposed to allowing that ego-based fear to keep us trapped in our comfort zones. So that's why more and more companies, and I'll give you an example, more and more companies are hiring, developing, and promoting largely based on emotional intelligence. An example would be a company that's currently valued at $2.2 trillion, and they're doing about $600 billion a year in revenue, and their primary hiring focus in their stores is emotional intelligence. And that company is Apple. That's why when you walk into an Apple store, that energy you feel is an example of a more emotionally intelligent environment. They're not trying to sell you anything. They're trying to understand your pain and if possible, offer a solution to your pain. They right. want you to have a great experience and maybe you'll tell your friends and they'll tell their friends. And if you think about it, that energy you feel in that environment is a very different energy from the energy you feel from the stores surrounding that environment. Oh, so that's an example of a more emotionally intelligent environment. And then there's also, you know, I heard, I was watching um, the social dilemma that, and um, Kristen Harris, I think was, he was a ex Google um, VP. And he was talking also about not only is this emotional intelligence, present, they're also learning how to plug it into the algorithms and uh, provide people as products still in that respect. Is, do you see that that's something that um, is a bit contrary to our nature? Uh, and yet it, it is a, certainly a business practice and using available tools to make things better and, and more cohesive from a business perspective. Well, what do you think that's doing to us as um, conscious beings and being able to recognize well, you've asked yeah, a couple of questions products. yeah you've just you've just asked several questions i did but let me um the development of emotional intelligence is an experiential process it's not an intellectual process mm -hmm. meaning that you can't develop it by having a conversation or reading a book or watching a video. Those are intellectual processes. The development of emotional intelligence is an experiential process that occurs when we leave our comfort zone in the pursuit of better results. Um, and interaction so, with others. Pardon? And interaction with others. Right, well, it's, it's all the same thing. Yeah. Um, so it's not something that you can get from an appliance. It's something that goes on inside of us by doing the emotional labor of moving through the fear that leaving our comfort zone triggers in us. Mm -hmm. Well, and the language is going to be different from a fear-based person to a love-based person, right? That 
how they express themselves oh yeah is going to be different and this is where i was going with the the attention of the algorithms and looking for those kinds of things as to what kind of products to offer them you know as what as an example but of, you can't use a piece of software to develop emotional intelligence oh absolutely not i was i was talking about how still we're we're in this massive change right where there's all this information that's becoming available where it, most of it's data driven now and it's the interpretation of the data as to what to do and the next steps and things like that and that data includes levels of emotional intelligence as well as um, the capacity for production right I have no idea what you're saying I apologize, but I'm I have I'm having difficulty understanding the discussion. I'm trying to frame a question with some background information as to how I'm thinking about it. Can I suggest you just ask the question? Um, does the does the raising in consciousness and how we're experiencing the emotional intelligence boon if you will do you see that actually affecting how ai is developed over time um boy i guess what you're kind of asking is will ai become intelligent and nobody knows that um Right now, AI is simply an appliance. No, that's not really what I'm asking. What I'm asking is, is what kind of effect? Because AI can go both directions as far as its use. It can it can be used for the betterment of humanity or the detriment uh, of depending sure. on who's in charge sure. of it. What I'm asking is that do you feel like this raise in emotional intelligence is going to be enough to make sure that the use of AI is uh, for the betterment of humanity as, as opposed I, to the detriment of it? I hope so, but I. Uh, that's a great. That's a great question, um, and I think we're. Uh, boy, it takes. A, it takes a lot longer than people think. To develop emotional intelligence, mm. and the rate of technology, the rate of the rate of AI development, uh it's way beyond Moore's law. May likely, <laughs> may likely accelerate faster than we as humans can develop our emotional intelligence. So, it sort right of makes now there are there are no governance. There's no there's no guardrails on the development of uh, AI. So we're really kind of playing with something that we have no idea what the outcome is going to be mm -hmm. right now it's just a it's just a nice toy unless we make sure that in the development of it those who are have sufficient emotional intelligence training to be able to have a more conscious approach and we've had and we've happen. sure but we've shown no ability as a species to be able to do that as a matter of fact a long time ago mark twain said if the only way mankind can learn is through experience 
I see no hope for mankind. And what he was really saying was, if the only way we can learn not to put our hand on the stove is by putting our hand on the stove, that assumes we're going to be around from a do-over so we can learn from it. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear that we're dealing with things like AI and CRISPR-Cas9 gene and ink technology and that we're dealing with things that we may not get a do-over. We've got to get it right the first time and we've shown little, little ability, little consciousness to not put our hand on the stove. Mm. And, and to get away from the destructive testing. You know, we find something and right, right away it's okay, let's tear it apart to see how it's made rather right. than let's ask it how it's made and maybe understand it better from that perspective. And, and yeah, you know, I, I know that may sound kind of silly, but even in a non-material way, if because we are all energy, when we ask questions, there are answers available. We may not understand them yet. We may yep. not even have the capability of asking the right questions yep. yet. Yep. And, and yet, it seems like this accelerated process is giving us the opportunity to, and the virtual environment has just been a boon of questions and answers and explorations and conversations like we're having. Yeah, and uh, agreed. So we're we're accelerating in a direction. <laughs> and for some folks, uh, they're becoming more conscious. Uh, for other folks, they're becoming less conscious. So there's a, there's, a, uh, there's a diversion that's occurring rapidly as a result of, our, of, the, of the accelerating rate of global change. Um, so some people are becoming more conscious, some people are becoming less conscious. And we're going to see that unfold very, very rapidly. So that points to the need for the more conscious people to inspire the rest of us based on our based on our behavior and our results mm -hmm. um, to move in in a better direction. So we're we're um, we're kind of at a tipping point as a species. We're really being forced to change at a very, very rapid rate. Um, and it's not going to be pleasant for, for any of us. At least for a time anyway. Hopefully we'll learn. Well, if it allows us to be more conscious, it'll be worth the effort. If it forces us to be less conscious, then we're in trouble. Well, even facing this for me now, and perhaps even for you, I know with the things that I've had to face throughout my life and, and being a nonlinear thinker, being living outside the box, basically. And in as I get older, I'm looking at things, I'm much less attached to them. My life is much happier. And I'm feeling much more excited about the coming future than not. Now, this is an internal kind of an anticipation of something way beyond my understanding that seems to be unfolding based on the evidence that you're presenting, that I've witnessed, that others are experiencing, and that this kind of capacity for rapid shift may just be the tipping point of that ice or the tip of that iceberg that is going to create a huge change that we're unaware of. Yeah simply by enough of us having a shift of consciousness and being able to focus that. It's like, you know, that um, 
momentum tunnel, I think there was a guy named John English that wrote a book called Soul Mechanics, or maybe it was somebody different. But anyway, he talked about a momentum tunnel of the more you focus your attention, intention, and interaction toward a goal, the more the universe, our own divinity, will put things coincidentally, uh, synchronistically in our path. It's something in our called the reticular activation system. Okay. What you what you think about expands, exactly. um, and um, so yeah. So we're we're going to experience quite uh, a challenge going forward, and how we face that challenge is going to determine our future mm -hmm. whether it's openness and inquiry or oh no <laughs> yeah um how do you think the methodology or methodologies for seeing things differently could be better presented um across the spectrum uh, is it a I'll just leave it at that question. How do you think it would be better presented? Well, as I say, the, the development of emotional intelligence is an experiential process. So in order for people to really appreciate the value and importance of emotional intelligence, they have to actually get involved in developing it. So in other words, it it emotional intelligence differs from intellectual intelligence because it initially requires a leap of faith because you can only connect the dots in hindsight after you've taken the leap of faith so what that means is that you really can't explain to somebody what emotional intelligence is um until they've experienced it oh and, and if that you know that leap of faith i i totally agree that's what it is there's a letting go what a, a how do you release or even perceive or, or conceive of that faith capacity well the motivation is uh usually pain mm. it's it's usually it pain <laughs> yeah it's usually pain that says you know what what i'm doing ain't working i gotta get better results so you know i'm willing to take the leap um, I don't know if it's going to work or not, mm -hmm. but what I'm doing definitely isn't working. So but that creates that, the motivation to take the leap. Sure. And, and, and it does. And yet, you know, some are so comfortable in the pain that they don't recognize it as pain. So what, what you're describing is as we raise our walls, we become blind what's going on in us and around us and you're absolutely you're absolutely correct the more resist the more we give away our energy the more resistive judgmental attached outcome we become the blinder we become to what's going on in us and around us very true mm -hmm. so they become uh, some people are just unreachable because they're just they're 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 unwilling 
Mm -hmm. And as much as we try to encourage, we can't control them. It's their choice. And, and we have to be okay with that. And, <laughs> and when you're in a relationship or a family or those kinds of environments, right, where you really care about people, that that's a different kind of pain. And yet you still got to, you know, at, at, we still have to let go of that and allow them to live their life as they so choose. And the only thing we can do to try and help other people is be an example uh, through our behavior and our results um, of a better path. And that's all we can do. If we try to do more than that, we cross the line from trying to help somebody to trying to control them. Right. And you've had the benefit of the exposure to you know, multinational corporations and, and using this kind of philosophy within them and their businesses have soared as a result. What is What was the, the key or was there a key or series of keys that led to that, to the greatest leap in productivity and, and performance? Well, um, you know, we've been discussed, there's a methodology for individual change and there's a methodology for organizational change, mm -hmm. but you can't have organizational change without individual change first. So as more and more individuals begin to develop their emotional intelligence, um, you reach a tipping point within the organization where it kind of, your organization begins to heal itself. Um, and that tipping point is is usually around 20 to 25% of the people in the organization. Um, so the so the the innovation takes on a life of its own. Um, but it's uh, individual change is incredibly difficult. Organizational change is exponentially more difficult. Mm -hmm. but it must begin with individual change. Now, what do you see as being the key uh, choices or, or moments in the beginning of that personal individual change? Pain. And the, well, no, no, I understand that it stems from pain. What are the first signs of the questions that are asked to move beyond oh. that? Uh, we need to generate more revenue. We need better employee, customer, deeper relationships. Um, okay, those are statements. I want to progress in my career. Is there an individual, from an individual standpoint, is there a question or, or types of questions that come up in the individual rather than I need this, an actual question is to get them to be more self-reflective? No. Um, because they don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a there is a central question that I ask initially, and that question is, what do you want? Because people don't do what they need to do, they do what they want to do. Mm -hmm. So you have to find out what somebody wants, because when somebody tells you what they want, they're also telling you what they don't have. And the bigger the gap between where they are versus where they want to be, the more motivated they are to look for a solution to close that gap. And without that motivation, you cannot help them um, because they they don't have the motivation 
to do the very difficult emotional labor that change requires. Okay. So uh, the uh, whole what? key initial the initial the key initial question is to try and find out what they want, not what they need, mm -hmm. what they want, because what they want is what motivates them to leave their comfort zone to go get it. When does the shift from wants to needs occur? I don't know that that's even relevant. Well, um, in my people experience, don't, when you're don't do what projects, they, people don't do what they need to do. So let me ask I, you I need to lose weight, but that's not going to cause me to, my need to lose weight. Let me let reframe me that then. Um, in the process, we move from what I want to the what the situation requires, which is the needs, right? The individual wants, that's one thing. So if you're moving into the outer world to fulfill those wants, what does the outer world need in order for that to take place? So this is where I frame that question from. When does the um, the want to the understanding that there are needs present that need to be fulfilled in order to gain the want or the I, results of the want. Does that, am I making sense? Because for me, from a person, from a project management standpoint, there are those wants of the various individuals who have agendas in the project and want their, and want their own things. Then there are the needs of the project that override the needs of the end uh, the wants of the individual and so there's an acquiescing to a greater activity let, let me let me try to explain still. this let me try to explain this a maybe different i'm not way. understanding what you're trying to, okay super a company is in business because they want to provide a product or service to serve some something that the marketplace is looking for Mm -hmm. And each individual in that company has their own separate reason for wanting to be in that company. And the key is to align what the individual wants with what the organization wants so that um, if you think of an organization as an engine, the individuals in the organization are the pistons in that engine. So when an individual sees how their personal, what they want to achieve, their personal vision, their personal why can be achieved by aligning with the organizational why, they're much more engaged, they're much more motivated because they see how the organization's success will help them achieve their personal success. And that's how you develop a very engaged organization. Um, so it's really two things you have to connect with emotionally. The reason why the company is in business, providing whatever product or service they're providing with the reason why the individual walks through the front door every morning. So those two things have to be aligned for the organization to be very successful.
Very true. Now, outside of the organization, in life, the <clears throat> same kind of thing applies. Because I, I do believe there is a distinction, at least from my experience, and I could be wrong. I, I don't know everything, right? Um, in the difference between the want and the need, I want a certain life, okay? Having that life has certain requirements. So those are the needs that I need to consider in order for me to get what I want, right? There are those changes that one has to uh, make, the, the emotional intelligence, for instance, that has to be developed in order for those results to take place. So that's where the distinction between the wants and needs. You want something, well, the universe, and I guess in your perspective, the, the thing that wants something us, from you. I think we just might be getting semantical. Um, well, the thing that motivates us to take action is emotion. Mm -hmm. The thing that motivates us to take action and move the emotion that moves us outside of our comfort zone towards achieving better results is what we want to achieve, mm. not what we need to achieve. Need doesn't create motivation. Want does. Agreed. But, uh, so how would you frame, I want this, what do I need to do? Okay. So I want to achieve a desired result. So what do I need to do now? What action do I need to take now that can begin to move me in the direction of that desired result? That's and that's- exactly what, That's exactly what I was talking about. Um, the inquiry, right? I want, what do I need to do? Or how do I need to be in order to gain those things that I want, um, and and essentially, so still, what does the universe need? What does the so so when reality you want from me in order to give me what I want? I think it's much simpler than that. I think we're we're overcomplicating. Oh, we're, we're, we're not that complicated. <laughs> We'd like to maybe believe we are, but we're not. Uh, yeah, we're very I, we're 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 driven very simply by chemical responses and um we have a desire to pursue things we want to pursue because of how it makes us feel sure that's, that's an emotion that. feeling is an emotion yeah yeah, that, that that's why I said that I was in total agreement with you. Um, now, in this, how might we begin to look at the development of bridging that once from both angles and the kinds of questions yeah. that we <laughs> as individuals might have to assist finding out, you know, beginning to understand what we don't know. The starting point for each of us 
is we have to develop an emotional connection to something we want to achieve, the vision of a desired result that is stronger than the fear that's going to get triggered in us when we begin to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can really measure that is through, by the action somebody takes. Um, if we don't have a strong enough emotional connection to something we want to achieve that's greater than our fear, we may want better results than we're currently getting, but we won't be willing to do the emotional labor that getting better results requires. So you can tell which one of those two is winning by simply someone's behavior. Lots of people want better results than they're currently getting, um, but very few people are actually willing to do the emotional labor that getting better results requires. And how do I know that? Because we see more often than not, people that are unwilling to change themselves often use some type of position-based power to control, manipulate others to get them to change. Mm -hmm. And that's why the level of employee engagement is only 13%. The toxic environments that are created within organizations are a result of people unwilling to change and trying to use position-based power to get others to change because they are unwilling to change. And let me ask you this. When those changes are made, do their lives get better? Oh, unbelievably better. Unbelievably. The, uh, so the, why do we resist so much when there's so much evidence of, you know, you make the changes, life's going to get better? Great question. The two reasons. A, we're almost, we're barely conscious at all. And B, it's scary as hell. Mm. And we're driven primarily by our ego-based fears. So our ego-based fear keeps us trapped in our comfort zone prisons. And often produces exactly what we're afraid of. Exactly right. Yeah, it guarantees yeah. focus it, on our, our inability to, our unwillingness to change guarantees failure. The perceived comp the perceived safety of staying within our comfort zone guarantees our failure, mm. especially during a time of rapid and accelerating global change. Oh, absolutely. You know, even in um, COVID-19, the Great Reset, um, Schwab's book, he asked a couple of really important questions, one on an individual level, and that's, can we be caring and compassionate towards one another coming out of COVID? That's a great question. The second one was involved with the business development. And can businesses be agile enough to navigate the change and make the changes within the organizations necessary to survive? Because the old patterns, the old way of doing business is not going to work anymore. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, I wouldn't give business quotations credit for this. Mm. Um, I think that a 
uh, people have had an opportunity, COVID has given people an opportunity to move outside of their toxic work environments and kind of lift their head a little bit and become a little more conscious of what they were what they were maybe less conscious of before. And a lot of them are saying, I'm, I'm not going back. Right. Isn't that I'm, a great I'm, silver I'm not going to go back into that toxic environment. And it's a great silver lining for the individual, not so much for the companies. Well, actually, it will force the organization to change mm. um, if they want to survive. And that's good for the organization. So again, the root, the root cause motivator for change is often pain. The organization is feeling pain because the employees are resisting coming back. The employees are resisting because they don't want to go back into that painful environment. Sure. Especially so that becomes the motivator. Pain becomes the motivation for change, both on an individual and an organizational level. So in other words, it's okay to have some pain. Well, it's, 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 <laughs> as long as it's not too much, right? It's essential. Well, no, actually, you bring up a good point because people that actually accomplish a lot go through the most pain. Yeah, they um, see what they what they that. recognize that on the other side of that that anxiety. That's if you're not feeling that anxiety from time to time you're actually stuck in your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So they so they routinely challenge themselves to move outside of their comfort zone in the pursuit of better results. It's interesting that you bring up the, the feeling of anxiety, right? That sensation's in the gut, right? And the same sensation goes along with anticipation as well, that anxiety. And so... From the fear to the anticipation, maybe that's one way to shift the the thinking about the sensation, right? I'm feeling this. What do I do with it? How do I process it and then make choices about it? So it gives us an opportunity for changing. Yeah. Hmm? Bill, I'd love to have a parting gift for the audience as to, you know, something that has really been relevant for you in the changes that you've needed to make, what what's a, a single thing that you could offer the audience that would be helpful? I would really encourage everybody that's watching this to bet on themselves by beginning the process of developing their emotional intelligence. The ROI is incredible. And as we continue to move through this century, um, it's going to become more and more apparent that it really is the solution to be able to thrive in this rapidly changing world in which we're living. Mm, very much so. Bill, it's been a wonderful conversation with great depth of insight and understanding, and I totally appreciate what you've had to go through to get it. And I know our audience will enjoy the reflections you've been able to offer. Thanks, Zen. It's uh, I appreciate the opportunity to to get together with you again and to uh, and to be on your show. So thank you. My pleasure as well, Bill. And Namaste. And Namaste. in catch 
Thank you for sticking with us for this episode of One World in a New World. I'm your host, Zen Benefield, and I will see you next time. <laughs>